can follow along. He hides my life, life in the depths of his love. Um, what wonderful line that is. And thank you once again, choir, for blessing us uh, with that. Um, my name is Chris, and I'm the Family Life Pastor here. And I'm just thankful that I'm able to um, come and give you the, the message today. But before we do that, we just have one uh, quick announcement, which is Grow 401. It starts next week. It's a two-week class, and as you can see up there, it says Living to Serve. Um, just want to clarify that this class is not only um, the why, but also um, the how and the where. Um, not only why do you serve, or why do you need to serve Christ, but how do you serve Him? But also, uh, in the second part of the class, there's actually an assessment that, that you take, and it kind of shows you where your gifts are, where your strengths are, and um, so that you can fit into the right uh, body in, in, this, in this kingdom that we have. And so, um, so we wanna, I want to encourage you to sign up for that class. Uh, you can do that right outside um, in, the, in the patio. There's a table there, um, and you can sign there. You know, we have been going through um, the book of Romans. Um, it's, it's heavy. The book is heavy, but I want to encourage you that as we uh, go through this book uh, and as you learn more, maybe, uh, you know, definition of certain theological terms, learn concepts that you might have heard of, uh, and it's, it's clarified now, uh, that when you um, go through this series, that I, I truly believe that the more you know, um, you know, the more important thing is who you know, and that's Jesus Christ, but the more you know who he is, the more you know what he has done um, in your heart, and if you believe those things, that you will fall in love with him more. So that is uh, my hope, uh, that that's what you have in your heart, not only this intellectual knowledge of all the stuff that comes out of Romans, but this um, genuine understanding of uh, his love for you. You know, we're going to go to Romans chapter 5, and Romans chapter 5 is, uh, Paul is um, changing his line of thought or transitioning his line of thought to uh, something a little different. Uh, chapters 1 through 4, um, he's, been, he's been espousing how we are sinners, and God came, and he, now he has justified you, so there's a lot of theological terms, and we learn all of those things, initiation, justification, and all these wonderful truths of God. Now, what Paul does in chapter 5, and he turns a corner with 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. He turns a corner, and he turns from justification to now what we call sanctification, or justification to the fruits of justification. What are the implications? What are the results of the fact that you are justified um, by God? Uh, what, what kind of life do you have? Because this life that we live is a privileged life. It's a life that has, is, a, is a blessed life, according to Paul. And he's going to start off with chapter 5. So let's turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And we'll read there. So Romans chapter 5, verses um, 1 through 11. reads, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still sinners, I'm sorry, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, 
Though perhaps for a good, re- good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For, it, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Inspire us and pray. Lord, I pray that it's a sign that you would illumine our minds, uh, you would open up our hearts to the truth, the wonderful truth of your word. Lord, may we be blessed through the truth that comes out, and may we be encouraged to love you, to worship you, and to live for you because of what you have done for us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what is that first fruit of justification? When we talk about you know, God declaring us righteous, and Apostle Paul starts in verse 1, it says, therefore, meaning that all of that he said before, in chapters 1 through 4, all of that, because of all of that, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, this is a first fruit, first implication, first result, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What he is saying is, from wrath to peace. Before, men were under the wrath of God. That men, when God saw men, he was angry at them. But he is saying, now, since we have this justification by faith, it is no longer wrath. It is no longer anger, but it's acceptance. It's reconciliation. We don't have to fear, as Isaiah did in chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah, when he came in to the presence of God. And there, he was in the presence of God, and he looked at God, the holy God. He looked at the angels. And he looked, and the only thing that he could say was, I am undone. It is not right for me to be here. He is a holy God, and I'm a rebellious, wicked person, and the two cannot stand next to each other. But what Apostle Paul is saying is that you don't have, you, it's not like Isaiah now. Okay? You have peace with God. What Christ did on the cross, that anger has turned to acceptance. Now, this is different from the peace of God, because peace of God goes in and out. I mean, peace of God, sometimes we have it, sometimes we don't. You know, we hope to have it, and this is what we long for always, to have this peace of God that even though there's chaos in the world, chaos in our lives, that we can be calm and we can say, God, I know that you're with me and I know that you're, you love me, therefore I have the peace of God. That's what Philippians chapter 4, 7 tells us. It's this peace of God that transcends all understanding. It comes through prayer and we have that. But we know in our lives that Sometimes the peace disappears, right? When calamity, suffering, trials, and lies, we don't feel that peace of God, and it comes and goes. But this peace that Paul is talking about here, peace with God, is a historical, objective thing that has happened and that cannot be taken away if we believe in Jesus Christ. It is because he did it. It is not initiated by us. It's initiated by him. It's not accomplished by us is accomplished by him. He took the initiative to make peace with us, even though we rebelled against him. 
And so this peace of God, it's always going to be there because he is the one that has done it. And I, I say that this peace, of, this peace with God, if we have it, then we're able to have the peace of God because we're not able to have that peace of God without realizing that we have peace with God. Let me say that once again. We can never have the peace of God that we desire without having the peace with God. This peace with God gives us a clear conscience that there is no more hostility between the holy God and us. And all we need to do is pray for God's peace and he will give that to us. But if this peace with God is not there, we can never have the peace of God because there's always going to be hostility between God and uh, man. But, but praise God, and that's what Paul's saying, praise God that we have this peace with God. So that is the first fruit of, uh, uh, of justification. The second is this access to God. And he says it in verse 2, it says, through him we have obtained uh, access by faith into this grave in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we have this, this peace with God, and Paul you know, says, now through him, we also have obtained access by faith. You know, um, my wife always wants to help me. Uh, she's in the room, but she always wants to help me with my sermons. And, and so, uh, you know, the thing that when I prepare sermons, I prepare the manuscripts, I, I kind of write and, and organize all these things, and I leave all the uh, illustrations towards the very end. Um, and I was, having a little, I was having a hard time with some of the illustrations um, for, for this particular message. And my, my wife wants to help me out. And she's asking me like, like two days or three days ago, and go, hey, you know, you know do you have, how's, your, how's your sermon prep going? She's going, okay, I just don't have illustrations. Okay, let me help you. Tell me a little bit about your sermon. I go, no, it's okay. I, I, can, I can come up with the illustrations on my own. But she insisted. She goes, yeah, you know, you need to have some good illustrations. You need to make the people laugh, right? <laughs> I haven't you get them. So she's, she's kind of bugging me about it. Uh, not bugging, but encouraging me. Sorry, <laughs> wrong word. Okay, encouraging me and then kind of say, hey, you know, I, I can give you, I, I, I can do it. I, you know, and I, you know, I'm resisting, I'm resisting. No, it's okay, I'll come up with illustration on my own. And the reason why, and she doesn't even know this, but the reason why, so she knows it now, she, the reason why is, you know, I, I, I'm thankful, but how about if she gives me an illustration that in my mind may not be as, Good as she might. So what? What do I do? I so do I use it? Do I not use it? And then I feel bad. So I lose no matter what. I, I lose no matter what. And so I told her, you know what? It's okay. I, I can think of my own illustration. I can think of it. I can think of it. Okay. And so I kind of resist it. Bad, bad mistake. <laughs> because I should have accepted her help. Because uh, all I thought as I was thinking about the sermon, the only illustration that came to my mind was a door. That's my illustration for you. A door. Not a story about my kids, but a door. That's the only illustration that I can think of. So I should have, uh, you know, get, got help from her. But my illustration is a door, <laughs> okay? And what I mean by that is the access to God is like a door, okay? Yes, a door. And a door is a barrier, right? The door is a barrier, right? The door is a barrier between the person inside the room and the person outside the room. If it's closed, I know that, you know, I'm a teacher and kids come. If I close the door, the kids know that they're not supposed to just open that door and walk in in my classroom. They need to knock. And my head needs to come up, and I have to give them, okay, come on in. Okay, come on in or, or stay away. I don't want to talk to you right now. Okay, but the door, and they know that they can't come in without my permission. You know, even if the door is open a little bit, 
And, and I do this too. When I, when I walk and I see a door open, I, go, I, I don't actually just go in because that's kind of rude, right? You kind of give that gentle knock on the door, open the door, and just kind of wait for that person. Oh, yeah, yeah, come on in. I can talk to you. There's only one time or one instance where, where or there's only one person or one people or type of person that never needs to knock on my door to come in. Okay? And those are my kids, especially when they were young. If, if I had my door closed and they wanted to come in, they would just go in, open that door, and walk in. They don't knock. It would be weird for them to knock. They don't knock. and, and No, they just open the door and just walk in. And they walk in. They don't say something like, you know, Father, I have a request for you, or can I just come? No, they walk in. They, they open the door, and they, they assume that I'm going to give them their attention and usually it's something that they need or something that they want, right? That door is not a barrier to them. The door is not saying, don't come in. It's just a piece of wood that just have to open and walk in for them. And if, being a good, if I was a good father, and, I, and sometimes I am, sometimes not, <laughs> and I walk in, if they walk in, and, they, and as soon as they walk in, my head turns Towards them. Right? When your kids walk in into your room, your head turns towards them. And then when, I, when they ask me, Dad, can you give me something or can you help me with this? My reply is, What do you need? They have free access to me. A door is not a barrier. And what this, what Paul is saying here is, is that there is now no more barriers between you and the holy God because now you have become his child. You are not a sinner or you are not a wicked person to God anymore. You are a child. See, for us, that is a, that's wonderful news, and it's, it's not that big of a shock, because I can give an illustration, you can kind of understand it. But the people that heard this for the first time, it was something that they probably could not comprehend, because all of their lives, what they've been hearing is that God is this holy God. If they read any of the Old Testament, there's hundreds of things that are barriers to getting closer to God. The whole sacrificial system, the temple, the tabernacle was devised so that people wouldn't be close to God. There was an outer court, inner court, the holy place, the holy of holies. There were sections where some people could come in and other people couldn't. And if they did come in, they would die. Anyone except for the uh, the high priest on one day of the year, if they came into the holy of holies, they would just drop dead. To gain access to God, they would have to kill an animal. Blood has to be shed. There was an incredible amount of things that you need to sacrifice and do to even get a little glimpse, a little closer to God. That's what these people were used to. Not what they are hearing from Paul. Is that that is no more. You have free access 
to this holy God which you fear before. Now, he is not only the holy God, but he is the holy father that will turn his face towards you when you come in to his presence. And I think we need to pause at times when we hear these truths and see what wonderful news that is for us. That we have access, free access. We didn't pay to get into this access. We didn't do anything. It's free. It's with grace that we're able to come in to the presence of God. That now you have, according to John 1.12, that now you are a child of God. And God is not going to shoot you away. But he's going to come and embrace you as a father to a child and give you the things that you need. You know, if I ended the sermon there, if I said that that was it, that these were the only two things, you know, that, that we have, and these are the only two fruits of justification, we would all be able to sit and say amen, and that is enough, right? There's no more peace. I mean, there's no more wrath. There's no more hostility. We have peace with God. Now he treats us as his child. What more could we want? But look, this is what Paul says in verse 2. He says, at the very end of verse 2, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so these wonderful two fruits of justification. Then in verse 3, he says, not only that. He says, there's more. And, and these people, when they first read it, are thinking, are you kidding me? What more can we have? These, this is the desires of every Israelite, to get close to God, to be in the presence of God. But Paul says, no, we're not done yet. There's more. He said, not only that, and you kind of expect Paul to say something greater uh, than, um, than this, this access by faith. Because Paul loves to kind of start here and do something a little greater, a little greater, a little greater, and a little greater until he just uh, shouts in praise. Uh, that, that's kind of Paul's uh, method. So we expect something greater. And so verse 3 says, not only that but we rejoice in our suffering. We, we, pause. we have to take a little pause there and stop there. What? <laughs> this seemed like the natural flow, right? We had this, this peace with God, which has been there since all of eternity, until Christ came. No, I'm sorry, not all of eternity, since the fall. And then now we are God's child with all the privileges but he said, there's more, and that more is that we rejoice in our suffering. Not only does that seem like less than the ones before, but it seems like, what are you talking about? Rejoicing in our suffering? Who, who does that? Who rejoices in our suffering? So let's dig a little deeper into what Paul is saying here. Okay? What Paul is saying, first of all, is that when we're justified by, faith, justified by faith, we have a new way of looking at trials in our lives, okay? And, and these trials, these sufferings, are not things that are caused by sin, our own sin, 
or just by nature, but it's trials that come because we live in this fallen world. And when these things come upon our lives, because we're justified by faith, because we have access to God, because we have peace with God, we look at it in a, in a brand new, a different way, okay? And so Paul's not talking about, hey, don't, you know, it's not that we're rejoicing in spite of our suffering, that suffering is happening and we're kind of grinning and bearing it. It says suffering's here, but I'm just going to go through it. I'm just going to push through and I'm going to fight this suffering and I'm going to go, okay? That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about not grinning and bearing. Paul's talking about rejoicing uh, in our suffering. And, and so what, what does he mean? What does it mean? Uh, before we go into that a little bit, let's be, uh, let's be kind of uh, understand that please don't use suffering as a work to merit God's favor. Because some people have thought that we're, gonna, we're rejoicing in our suffering, so, so that's something good. So I'm sure that something good's going to be coming out of it. And what we do with suffering a lot is this, is that when things happen to us, trials come and, and we suffer, what we do is we take it as, as a badge of honor sometimes that I am suffering. You are not. I'm a better Christian, and God's going to give me favor. God's put this horrible thing on me, and I'm going to endure through it. Therefore, God's going to bless me. I'm going to merit some favor from God. I think we really need to be careful with this. I, 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 just, I know this one pastor, um, Great, great, great guy, uh, you know, gentle, genuine. But I think one of the things that, that he had that, that I saw as, uh, as like, you know, I had the question was um, the, the suffering part. Uh, he, he was a senior pastor. Um, obviously, I'm not going to say who it is, but he was a senior pastor. And I just remember um, that he lived a very simple, poor life. And I, I hadn't respected that a lot. Um, I respected him. Because he just, you know, he didn't, he just, he just lived that very simple, simple life. I, I think he was getting like $1,000 from his church every month. So he was struggling a lot and, and so forth. He didn't want his wife to work, although she could have. Uh, living in a simple home. And I, I respected it, uh, and it got, until a certain point. When, when I realized that the church has been wanting to give him a raise, they wanted him to live a little better. They wanted to love on him a little bit. And he refused and refused and refused because he took that suffering, that symbolized as, as a badge of honor, as, as a sign that he is a better Christian. If I say it, I don't, might be a little harsh on this, but better Christian than the others who take a lot of money. And he took it as a work and that somehow God would bless him because he is doing that. And he used suffering and trials as, as works. And he had, he had a lot of great things, but I think that was one fault that he had. And I think we need to be careful with that too, that we don't use the trials in our lives as something that's, that we say to God and to others, hey, look at my life. Look at how horrible it is. You know, God's going to put favor on me. No, God puts favor on us because he loves us, uh, no matter what situation we're in. Everything that we receive from God, we haven't merited. Everything we receive from God is by grace and grace alone. So we need to be very careful about that. But that still doesn't answer this question of how are we supposed to rejoice in our suffering. 
You know, Tim Keller um, says it this way. He says, rejoicing in our suffering, we got to look at suffering or trials as a gift and a test. And when I first read, he says, treat it as a gift, I was like, what? How could I treat suffering and trials as a gift? And what he goes on and says is that, you got to think about this. Christians are really the only type of people that actually can rejoice in our suffering. And we'll get to it a little bit more. But he's actually saying that it is, Paul's saying it is an evidence that the gospel is real in your life if you are able to rejoice in your suffering. Do, do you get that? He says that's one of the evidence that, that Christ is, is in our hearts is that we are able to rejoice in our suffering. But he also says that it is a test. It is a test uh, that, that we have. And, and, and trust me when, and I know you know this too, that the suffering uh, is, is almost norm for a Christian, right? That you can't go through a Christian life without any suffering or trials to come into your life. Why? It's because we follow Jesus. And we're to follow in his footsteps. And Jesus suffered. Jesus has trials. And, and Paul says this too. He says, I want to know him in his suffering. So for us to be a Christian, it is natural. It is normal for us to suffer. But why is that? And we know it because why Christ suffered. And here, here's the simple truth. The reason why Christ went through all the trials and the suffering that he did was because he was perfect. But not. It wasn't because of his sin. It wasn't even because he caused it. Because he was righteous. He was perfect. He was that perfect Christian. And because he was that perfect Christian, trials and suffering came to his life. See, what Christ was able to do was to see this fallen world for what it is. He was able to see with the sinless eyes all the sins of this world. He was able to see all the wretchedness and the wickedness of men. And it grieved him. And he says, this cannot stand. So he comes and tries to reverse it. By what? By dying on the cross for us. In order for him to reverse this process of this fallen world, the only way that he can do that is through suffering, through great suffering. That was the only way. You see, for, for Christ, suffering was natural because he was righteous. And what are the implications for us? Is that if we become more and more of a Christian, more and more Christ-like, more and more suffering will come to our lives because we are trying to do good in a fallen world. We're trying to glorify God in a fallen world. And the world fights against us. The world does not want that. We can escape through life without suffering if we don't try to glorify God if we don't try to do the right things in God's sight. 
But once we step into that line and says, I'm going to do what God wants me to do, trials will come because this fallen world will fight against you. But here's the thing. Here's the thing, though. We also have the eyes of Christ in this sense. Christ didn't go onto the cross and think that that was the end of the story. He didn't live this perfect, righteous life to say, that's going to end all on the cross when I die. No, he knew that he was going to be raised from the dead. He knew that there was something more, that the suffering produced something else which is greater, which is his resurrected life. So if we understand the gospel, if we understand Christ's story, and if we try to do the wrong thing, even though sufferings may come, we know that that's not the end of the story, that there is hope. And what Paul does, and he, like I said, he does this, he does this chain of things. He says, if you rejoice in your suffering, what's, what's going to produce it, what, what, what is going to be produced, is gonna, it's going to produce endurance. Perseverance, and that word is that sin, single-minded focus, right priority, Christ, the center of our lives. It's going to produce that. And when, you, when it does, then it's going to develop into character, this testedness, when you have that single-minded focus. You know, uh, I don't know if you're basketball fans, but uh, if you watch basketball, uh, last night there was uh, Portland and, um, and the Warriors against each other, and it's like the same story, right? Uh, if you saw the game, Portland is up ahead for a while, and towards the very end, they kind of crumble and fall and the Warriors come back, and they win. The last two games were exactly like that. They were up by, and then slowly, slowly, you can sense it. Almost everyone in the, in the stadium, and you watch it, you sense that it's going gonna, it's gonna to finally come to an end. And if you, see the, if you hear the analysis of, of, of some of the experts, they always say something like this. They always say that, you know, the, the Warriors have done it before. They know what to expect. You know, the Portland or Milwaukee or these other teams, they, they haven't been tested yet. They don't know how it feels, so they're going to crumble under the pressure. And they, they're going to eventually lose. But these warriors, because they were tested, they went through the, quote, the fire and, and all this stuff, they're able to handle these things. And I think that's what Paul is talking about here, is that if we endure and we keep our, our minds focused, that it develops a certain character in us that says we are able to determine that we are not going to be put down by the sufferings in our lives because of we know who Christ is and what he has done. And we know that it produces something greater. And at the very end of his chain of thought, he says it's going to produce perseverance, it's going to produce character, and then it says it's going to produce hope. So it starts off with, in verse 2, in the hope of the glory, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and the character produces hope. We start with hope, and we end with hope. And hope does not put us to shame. See, what Paul was, is trying to say is, we, we start with this, with this hope of Christ, and these trials come, and if we endure through it, and rejoice through it, it's going to give us character, and this character is going to produce this hope. And what does he mean, this, this hope here? Is it the same hope we had in the beginning? It kind of is, and this is, I think, what he means when he says it produces hope. 
You know, uh, one of the things that, um, that we have to realize is that suffering and trials attacks our hopes and idols in our lives. Think about it. It, it attacks our idols, and if it doesn't attack the idols and the hopes that we have, then suffering is really not suffering. If we're, if we're able to just kind of you know, deal with it, that's not, no, but it actually take, it attacks our hopes and desires. Um, I know many of you know, uh, but you know, my, my son, my older son was um, you know, diagnosed with cancer uh, in November of last year. And um, you know, I still remember uh, the day I received a call from my wife. I, I do. Uh, I know exactly where I was, and I know what she said. And I exactly know what my, my reaction was. Um, and she called me because we had you know, these testing, and then she finally called me and said, it's not good. And I, I remember at that moment, I, I was actually at school. And I remember that it, it was um, uh, devastating is not the right word because it was a lot worse than that. Um, it, it was a, a blow to, to me and where, you know what, you can't stand anymore. Uh, where you just have to kind of sit and kind of, and, and you, you almost don't know exactly what to say. And it, it was just devastating. And all of a sudden, uh, my whole world was crumbling a little bit. It, it, and, and, and all the, the images I had of, of, you know, of Jonathan and, and, and his future and all the things, all the starts to slowly not kind of disappear and crumble a little bit. And it was like that for, a, for like a week or so, that all these things. If you had to push me and ask me, uh, what is my idol? What is the thing that fights uh, against God and, and me um, uh, serving God with all my 100% heart? I would tell you that it's my family. If I, if I had to tell you that, that, that if, I, if it was an idol, it, it would be my family and my kids and my wife. And all the thing, what was happening at that moment was the, this trial, this suffering, this news hit that powerfully. And my hope and these things that I was holding on to, I was losing it for a week where I really didn't know exactly how to respond um, but slowly um, and surely, and you can, my wife can attest to this, things got better, not in the circumstances, but things got better in my heart. There is a sense of, of calm in my heart. I still was worried. I still you know, had, you know, was confused and all this stuff. But slowly, there was a calmness in my heart that I thought, how could this be? There's calmness. And it's not so much rejoicing, but there was a need uh, for us, for me, to praise him a little bit more. And this is not to get something from God, um, but there was a need that I need to praise God more and a desire to do that. There was a desire in me to pray to him a little bit more. And as I think about those um, the moments, this was what was happening, I think, is that when, when this trial and the, the suffering um, came into our lives, that, that God brought it in, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm confident God brought it in, and he brought it into our lives to crush my idols and my hope in, in those idols. It's to crush it and to get rid of it so that the only thing that remains 
is the hope in God. That what happened was that the suffering that we went through, all the other hopes kind of, and the only thing that shined in that day, in that time, was Christ. So we, we almost, saw, almost see it as a gift that God was able to do this so that we can place our hope only in God, our security only in God, our future only in God, rather than the things that we hold. And God chipped it away so that only the hope of Christ remained. If you think about suffering in that light, we can rejoice. We can rejoice in our suffering. If you can see that suffering, what it does is attack our false idols and our false hopes in our lives and gets rid of it so that only Christ's hope remains, then the suffering is worth it because Christ stands out in that circumstance. And he says, this hope that shines does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. Because this hope that shines is Christ's love demonstrated on the cross. And that's what verse 6 and 11 is. Because Paul goes on and says, the objects of this love were weak people in verse 6. Verse 6, they were ungodly. And in and, and verse uh, 8, they were sinners. And verse 10, they were enemies. This hope that we see, this love of God that we see, that shines bright in our suffering, we see it on the cross. Because on that cry, cross, Christ died for the weak, the ungodly, the sinner, and his enemies. That's who he died for, us, weak people, unable to save ourselves, ungodly, sinners, enemies of God. This is who he died for. This was a great demonstration of God's love. And that's what shined forth in our suffering. That's why we're able to rejoice in our suffering. You know, I, I don't know where you guys are at right now in terms of are there any trials in your life that, that's, that's, you know, that's in your life that just, you just can't praise God because of that? Uh, or you've just gone through it? Or there's some trial in the future for you? But, but let me just um, finish with this here. Yeah. If Jesus stayed on the cross and saved us when we were God's enemies then how much more will he keep us safe now that we are his friends? If he succeeded to save us when we were hostile to him, could he fail to prevail now that we are his friends? And one more. If he didn't give up on you when you were at war with him, what could you do to make him give up on you now that you are at peace with him. That is the God that we have, not only in the past on that cross, but that is the God that we have today in our lives. Let's bow our heads and pray.